Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week, a special treat from the archives. Several years ago, the Sydney Writers' Festival gave me the real honour of interviewing the Queen of British literary biography, Claire Tomalin. Tomalin is a very modest, self-effacing interviewee who becomes animated when talking about anything other than herself, so she has the perfect character for a biographer. She also happens to be married to one of Britain's greatest playwrights, Michael Frayn, whom she refers to in our conversation. It was quite a daunting prospect to interview her because she's written so many books about Mary Wollstonecraft, about Mrs. Jordan, the 18th century British stage actress and courtesan, Jane Austen, Henry James, Thomas Hardy, the actress Nellie Tiernan, who became Dickens's mistress, as well as Dickens himself and Samuel Pepys. So for this conversation, I decided to leave Dickens and Pepys to one side because once you get onto them, there's no room for anyone else. Oh, and just an apology, I had a horrible chesty cold during this, so I do sound a bit nasal and I wheeze and cough a bit. Now, Claire, I was looking for patterns, obviously. Um, Half your subjects are sort of under-the-radar people that we might not know anything about, uh, and the other half are ultra-famous, big-name authors. Can you tell us how you choose these subjects or how, in some cases, these subjects choose you or how one leads to another? Yes, well, I started um, from absolutely nothing. As a child, I wrote poetry, and I was going to be a poet. And then when I was about 20, I realised I was not a poet because I was at Cambridge when Sylvia Plath arrived, and I thought... That's it, that's it. (laughs) I um, went into publishing and really uh, was dealing with other people's works and then into literary journalism. And I started writing biography sort of almost by chance. Um, I was uh, working at the New Statesman as deputy literary editor and Dick Crossman, the politician, was the editor. And I told him I had to take maternity leave or or leave. And he said, oh, yes, take some time off and come back. We'll keep the job open for you, of course. And while you're um, taking the time off, write pieces for the paper. And um, so I was in the London Library. I found some letters by Mary Wollstonecraft, whose name had never been mentioned to me when I was reading English at Cambridge. And I thought the letters were absolutely extraordinary. They were written in the 1790s to her faithless American lover. And I felt she was in the room with me. She was such a strong presence. Her voice was just like the voice of someone I might have talked to in the street. And so I wrote a, a page, a one-page piece about Mary Wollstonecraft for the New Statesman. And that wonderful thing happened. Days after it came out, I got letters from publishers and agents saying, um, write a book about her. And so I said, well, there is already a biography of Mary Wollstonecraft, and there was, but it wasn't, a, it, there were several, in fact, but they said, don't be silly. And so, um, so, I, so I did, um, and uh, I used to call it Mary Who, because her, she was so little known mm. in England at that time. When I said I'm writing a book about Mary Wollstonecraft, they always said, Mary Who, Mary Who. So my book was Mary Who. And I found... My métier, as I started to research, I found that this was what I really wanted to do in life. I wanted to do research. I'd always wanted to study history. I very strongly influenced as a child by reading J.E. Neal's Life of Queen Elizabeth 
That was when there was only one Queen Elizabeth, uh, <laughs> Life of Queen Elizabeth, uh, which is a great biography. I reread it three weeks ago, and it stands up. My own copy that I bought for myself in 1943, and it's, it's enough to inspire anyone to want to do historical research and write biography. Um, so um, doing that research for Mary Wollstonecraft, which involved we going to Paris and looking in the archives and travelling around up to Yorkshire, where she lived when she was a girl, and... Uh, I lived in North London. Mary Wollstonecraft lived in North London. North London is a very good place to live if you're a literary biographer because <laughs> so many people, as American friends, used to come over and say, aren't you lucky? You've got all your materials right around you here. And so um, that, was, that was how I began. And in fact, I couldn't go straight on, although I got more commissions. I foolishly thought, because that book was a success, that I could earn my living as a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I couldn't. So I had to seek another job. So I, I got the job on the Sunday Times as literary editor, and I was there for, for several years, and I could not write a line while doing that job mm. because it was a very demanding job. There, there is a difference, obviously, between having you know, terrain to yourself and discovering someone that no one has written a biography of. With Mary Wollstonecraft, as you say, there, there were biographies already. Is there, something, there must be something quite um, intimidating and daunting about taking on a figure like Jane Austen um, and, and writing a biography of someone that, in a sense, we all feel that we know. You, you've got to uncover things about her that, that we don't know. So can you just talk a little bit about the difference between writing about someone very well-known and, and doing original research on someone we've never heard of? Yes, you're right. Jane Austen was a very daunting subject. And I felt, I felt sort of permission to write about her because I'd written about her contemporaries, women. I mean, I began my biographies. I am a feminist. I have always been a feminist. And um, I imagine every intelligent person is a feminist. (laughs) Um, uh, But I wanted to light up women's lives, especially, which I thought had been neglected. Um, So I'd written about Mary Wollstonecraft, and then I'd written about Mrs. Jordan, the actress. And they are more or less contemporaries with Jane Austen and Jane Austen actually saw Mrs. Jordan act, Mm. and Jane Austen was certainly aware of Mary Wollstonecraft because she owned a book by Robert Bage who mentions Mary Wollstonecraft. And uh, so I thought, when it was suggested to me that I should write about Jane Austen, I thought, well, I know the period Mm. really well. I'm absolutely at home in that period. Jane Austen was born in 1775, died in 1817. And I also thought... I've been reading Jane Austen since I was a girl, and I've read all her novels with my own daughters. And we all, uh, we all sort of inhabit them and talk about them together. Jane Austen is sort of part of our lives, which is true for many women, I think, yeah. and many families, women, women with daughters. You know, you, you sort of... Um, my granddaughter knows Jane Austen better than I do. She, she, she perceives mistakes in, in books about Jane Austen. <laughs> Quite daunting. So, so I thought, yes... Yes, I can do this. And it was, it was a wonderful task. And while I didn't make any extraordinary discoveries, didn't expect to make any extraordinary discoveries about Jane Austen, one of the things I felt was that uh, quite a lot of people in England liked to present Jane Austen as being part of upper-class society pretty well, or at any rate, you know, quite high up in the gentry. And it seemed to me that that really wasn't so. Her father was a clergyman with... Really, he didn't even own a house, you know. He lived in the, in the house given by the church, and when he retired, they, they had to go and live in lodgings. 
and all her brothers were meritocrats, except her brother Edward, who was a very, very handsome boy adopted by rich cousins, and he became the rich landowning uh, brother in the family. But all the other two of them had to make their way in the Navy, uh, James into the church, uh, Henry was in the army, then became a banker, and then failed and became bankrupt, and bankrupted half the family. And uh, her, her neighbours, the other thing I liked researching with Jane Austen was looking at the actual condition of the neighbours around in Hampshire and finding that they were not all comfortable, well-established people, but they were a very mixed lot, people who just moved into the neighbourhood, people who were failing and having to go and move to France. It, it, her background was really much more interesting, I thought, than what one was usually... Shown. Let's just stay with her for a moment because there's something very interesting about the way you've written the biography. You don't necessarily take a traditional linear structure for, for any of the biographies, really, I don't think. But in particular, what I like about the way you, um, you, you tackle Jane is that your subject headings are very surprising. So, for example, one of my favourite chapters in the biography of Jane Austen is called Dancing. And you make it clear that she loved dancing and that dancing was really socially important for a whole range of reasons. Can you talk about that organising principle of deciding that you're going to write a life thematically? Yes, I suppose that began. I mean, with Mary Wollstonecraft, I started at the beginning. She's born, and we talk about her grandfather yes. and her parents. Um, when I was writing Catherine Mansfield which I found a very difficult book to write, mm. um, I got quite stuck. And then I thought, well, I could do chapters because the very important people in her life were D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, uh, Murray, her awful husband, and um, her great friend Ida Baker, oh. uh, who was in her 90s then and whom I went to see and had a lot of talks with. And she was deaf and she was blind. And she paid me a great compliment. She said, I, well, I can hear everything you say, even though I'm deaf. <laughs> <laughs> and she was wonderful. Uh, so I had these thematic chapters, KM and VW, and it was a way of breaking the, the chronological binding rope, you know. And, uh, and D.H. Lawrence, my father was a D.H. Lawrence scholar, and I grew up, I think D.H. Lawrence is one of the great, great writers of the 20th century. So I loved being able to write about him a bit. And then after that, I got bolder. I mean, Jane Austen, I did do chronologically, but in my later books, all of them, I thought I would like to introduce my subject at the beginning as a, as a complete person and so that my readers could set, be confident they knew who this person was and then one could go back uh, That's interesting, because you do often sort of set the scene with a prologue, and I was going to yes. ask you what the purpose of the prologue is, and so the, the prologue is by way of introduction of this is who this person yes. is and why they matter. Yes, exactly. I, th I think uh, with Dickens, I wanted people to meet this entrancing young man mm. who was just rising to success and who was such a good man, and uh, in my very first chapter, I, I describe how he helped a servant girl who'd been accused of infanticide and went to an enormous amount of trouble. Uh, he was a young father himself. There's a wonderful account of him going to the workhouse where mm. they were having the inquest and being taken down to see the baby. 
uh, dead, you know, with a, with a knife beside it, which would have been used to sort of... And he, and, he, and he did. He got a very good barrister to, to mm. uh, defend her, and he won. And that was such a, such a sort of telling story about Dickens, how much he cared about the little people, about the people who were un- people at the edge of the picture. I think somehow Dickens in one of those great Victorian pictures, and the people he cares about are the ones at the edge, and, and the, often the disabled ones or the handicapped ones, mm. or the, certainly the poor and the strugglers. And that's one of the things I love Dickens for. Sorry, we've got on to Dickens. No, 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 well, that's fine. We, we can stray occasionally <laughs> towards Dickens. We, we will come back closer when we get to Nelly, I suppose. But just, just to stay with, with Jane... Um, a little bit longer. I can't resist staying with Jane a little bit longer. I went to her house at Chawton last year and I found that an incredibly humbling experience to see the little hexagonal table at which all the books were written and the table is about that size and it's by a window and the house is incredibly modest and her bedroom was absolutely tiny. And shared with Cassandra. And shared with her (laughs) sister and I just could not for the life of me see how you could get one bed that two people could sleep in there into that room, never mind two beds. Anyway, what I want to know is how much do you get, do you think, in terms of authentic feeling for someone from visiting the sorts of houses that are now open to the public? So, for example, you've written a biography of Thomas Hardy and many people go and see the Hardy Cottage and walk through the Bluebell Forest. How much are these places authentic to you? How much are they sort of a theatrical set? I think it's very important to go to the places. Um, it's a serious part of research. But you uh, didn't do it for Catherine Mansfield. Well, I didn't go to New Zealand, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was re- so kindly invited to go to New Zealand. Catherine Mansfield is rather my odd book out because it was such a struggle. It wasn't one I'd actually thought of doing myself. I was asked to do it. And I was having a very difficult time in life at that and I. I struggled and struggled with that book. And I hugely admired her. This, the, the colonial girl. I, my first mother-in-law was a Canadian girl, a wild Canadian girl. And I th- often thought of her when, when Catherine Mansfield came to London and behaved badly. You know? oh, that's, and that's the understatement of the decade. Yes. But she was so brave. And she was pursued by, I say, my book, by the Furies all through her life. And she went on writing. And she went on living as long as she could, which wasn't very long. I've forgotten, forgotten what we were, were saying. We're talking about going to uh, going authors' to the places. houses. Yes, I went to Marton, I went to Switzerland, of course, but I didn't go to New Zealand. And actually, once the book was in for a prize, and Roy Jenkins was the judge, and I was on a short list, and he came into the room for the dinner, and he came straight up to me, and I knew I hadn't won the prize, because that, you don't go straight up to the winner. You, you go up to the person who hasn't won. And he said to me that he thought the book only take, took off when she, when she had left New Zealand, and I thought, well, I suppose I didn't go there, you see. Right. But otherwise, you think that houses can give you a flavour of oh, someone's oh. circumstances. Yes, and all the his, wonderful historian I became a great friend of, Richard Cobb, who's dead now, I mean, he said you must always go to the places and you must walk round the places. And um, my, Michael, my husband now, has... Used to go with me. We would have very. We walked round Hampshire together and walked round Bath together. For Jane Austen, we went to France to find her cousin Eliza's chateau, and we found it, and it was absolutely thrilling. 
absolutely marvellous thing to do. And Richard said to me, walk. And, of course, you should go on horseback, too, if you can, because that's, that's what people actually did in the past. Or he said bicycle, perhaps. <laughs> well, well, bicycling, who did a lot of bicycling? Hardy, oh, Hardy, Tom, Thomas Hardy and, and his wife. Emma taught him Emma bicycle, Emma yes. cycled into her 70s. And I, I just want to ask you, you mentioned before about being a feminist, and that's very clear, obviously, in the choice of Mary Wollstonecraft as an emblematic early feminist, and in the other women that you bring into the light, like Mrs. Jordan and Nellie Turnan. But I'm interested, Claire, to find out how being a feminist informs your writing about men. I was thinking about that in relation to the biography of Thomas Hardy. I was trying to work out how your feminism informs that book. And to me, I think it's that you try to be so fair in acknowledging his first wife's contribution. And even though there were aspects of her personality that were really irritating to Thomas Hardy and his friends, you do try to bring a certain dignity Yes, to he her. loved her. He loved, he loved her. her. And his wooing of her in Cornwall is so wonderful. And the fact that he returns to that when she dies and that he relives it and he writes his very best poetry. When she died, he actually had her body brought down from her room upstairs and uh, the coffin um, with her in it at, in his bedroom until the funeral. I mean, and people are, so, people are very complex, aren't they? Mm. You can be irritated by someone and even hate them and also love them, and the memory of loving somebody. When uh, my parents were divorced, when my mother died, my father, who hadn't spoken to her for decades, came over. My sweet stepmother said, you go to, to Muriel's funeral. And he came over, and he came up to me, and he said, she was wonderful. And I'd never heard my father say a good word about my mother, ever. And I shall never forget that, because everything changed in... I, I realised he had really adored her um, and then hated her. So we must all have... We may not have such dramatic changes, but uh, people's feelings... You do have to... A poet like Thomas Hardy is a wonderful teacher to us of how these feelings can change and how we live with conflicting um, emotions. I do think that, I mean, it comes across very strongly to me, though, that you bend over backwards in the case of Catherine Mansfield, I think, to forgive her for some fairly obnoxious behaviour. I mean, you mentioned her friend Ida, who you were lucky enough to meet in her 90s. Ida was, without question, the most long-suffering, loyal and devoted friend to a woman who behaved hideously to her, over and over again. And I do sense that you really are very even-handed about Catherine, and I have to admit that I found her so detestable that I don't want to read her fiction ever again. Oh, oh. Well, Ida, Ida made herself a doormat. There are people who do that. Yes. There is no doubt. Yes. And that's what she chose to do. Um, I think, yes, Catherine behaved uh, pretty badly, um, to a lot of people. She was, she was a liar, she was manipulative, she, but she wrote jolly good stories. She wrote awful stories too, yes. dreadful, sentimental stuff. And I think Murray had a very bad effect on her. Uh, I think he's, he's the one I'm not very nice about because I don't think he was, I don't think he was a good thing. 
Um, that's true. And, and I'm just trying to think about where, where I can detect your indignation sometimes towards a subject. And I think that probably this book, Mrs. Jordan's Profession, I think this is probably my favourite. Because so I glad. knew nothing about Dora Jordan until I read this book. And her life is sparkling and glamorous partly because she was an absolutely brilliant actress, if not the most brilliant actress of her generation. But also, as a woman, as a mother, she was absolutely superlative. And as the um, mistress of um, the, the prince, she no. was gracious. And when it all fell apart, I cannot imagine anybody behaving with more true nobility than Dora Jordan... So I get a sense in this book, towards the end, when things unravel, when his family are putting pressure on him and saying, look, Not you can have... Not just his family, the bishops, the Everybody. church, the royal family. This woman who'd won ten grandchildren to King George III by his third son, William, uh, when they decided that William ought to be married off to some more suitable person... They put the whole weight of the, the church. Machine, yeah. I mean, if this book is, I am a Republican, and I f find the behaviour of the royal family in this book Despicable. so disgusting. And they took her two eldest sons who were in the army, who'd fought in Spain under Wellington. They sent them off to India to be out of the way yeah. while they did these despicable yeah. things. And your, your indignation does really come through, and, and I think, you know, fair enough. You know, this book is enough to turn anybody Republican. On the other hand, on the other hand, you do the first thank you in your acknowledgements, and I think your acknowledgements are fascinating to read because they <laughs> offer so many clues. Your first thank you is to the Queen. Well, I had to because they were wonderful to me. They let me work uh, in the archives at Windsor and they put no difficulties in my way. It wasn't the Queen personally, no. who, but the people at the, at the Royal Archives are very, very... Good. They're wonderful. I rec strongly recommend you to work in the Royal Archives <laughs> if you possibly can, because they go on. They go on. I mean, they've been very nice to me over uh, Dickens stuff. Because Dickens detested. I'm um, Dickens was a Republican, and um, although he nicely had tea with Queen, well, not tea, I think, but something at the very end of his life, he he had a very he turned down on, an honour. Yes. And he stuck to his. Uh, he thought the Queen's. Uh, book about the Scottish Highlands was absolutely terrible, and he was right. He was right. You're listening to a conversation I had with the doyenne of British biography, Claire Tomalin, recorded at the Sydney Writers' Festival in 2015. Um, has anyone, Claire, I can't imagine anyone resisting your scholarship, your reputation, your charm, and of course with more and more books to your name your reputation is burnished each time, but has anyone ever withheld something from you or been positively unhelpful? I don't think so, but, but actually there is a lot of hostility. Well, there was to biography. Uh, a lot of academics used to think... I, somebody said to me, you're just writing gossip, aren't you? I remember when I wrote The Invisible Woman... I sort of understand why people feel hostility. I mean, writers particularly hate the idea of being written about. Mm. And I think it's because you know, George Orwell didn't want a biography. Uh, Tennyson talked about biographers ripping people open like pigs. You know, he thought it was sort of horrible that people should look at your life. And um, many other people have... John Updike 
said he didn't. He hated the idea of biography. People writers. Nobody wants to be summed up by someone else. So I think I think one has to always to be aware that it is a privilege to be looking at someone else's life, and that one must look at it with respect. This isn't quite answering your question because I haven't. Apart from I, the, there were some Dickensians, and there still are some Dickensians who who dislike very much what I wrote about Turnan and, and mm. Dickens. Um, but that's I, principally, for example, over the issue of whether or not she had a child by him and where she was when he died, i.e. was she in the house, was she in the vicinity, did the family let her come, all yes, of that. Yes, I think, I think it's generally acknowledged that she was invited. It was whether possibly Dickens collapsed earlier, that story, which came to me after I'd finished the book. Um, but it was. The, I, I think people th- people thought Dickens shouldn't be sullied, shouldn't have dirty little fingers uh, looking into his life. You know? But what I meant about withholding, um, Hermione Lee came here a few years ago to talk about her biography of Edith Wharton. And, of course, before that, she'd written a biography of Virginia Virginia Woolf. And and she tells a story about going to see someone who was one of the keepers of the Bloomsbury flame and who is the person that you go to if you're doing a Bloomsbury biography. And she got the impression that this person was telling her information by rote and was sort of going, oh, God, here's another one. I can't think who that was. (laughs) I can't can't remember. She doesn't name who it is. But anyway, the person gave her the sort of bare bones of, you know, what they were prepared to give. And she went away and she did some more research and she suddenly thought, there's something missing and it's letters between Virginia and her brother and they must be somewhere. And she rang the chap back who had been so kind of casual and offhand and said, where are the letters between Virginia and her brother? And he said, oh, they're in the attic. I was just waiting for someone to ask. Good for her, good for her. Very good. Sometimes people don't volunteer what they've got. Now, you had a different situation with Catherine Mansfield, didn't you? Which is the the book where someone had already started writing and then gave you their manuscript? Oh, well, that's The Invisible Woman. Ah, yes, the turning book, sorry. uh, uh, Catherine Longley. Yes. Well, it wasn't... Yes, it wasn't quite like that. Um, I... I wrote that book because um, I'd read about uh, Nellie Turnan at Cambridge and uh, her, just realised there was this person who was for 12 years Dickens's companion and nobody had seemed to have taken any interest in her and I thought that one day, later in my life, I would like to investigate it. And so when I went into the Dickens Museum and spoke to the curator... He at first said, he first sort of said he was telling people not to do this. And then he looked at me and said, I think you might be the person to write this book. And he then said he would help me. And he told me about Catherine Longley, a a researcher who lived, a quite elderly lady then, who lived in Hull, who'd written this enormous unpublishable book, typescript, about the Turnan family. And uh, I knew that she'd let Peter Ackroyd uh, see it. And I think Peter's attitude was very much taken from it because she was absolutely determined to show that they had not been lovers and her version of it was that um, Dickens was having elocution lessons with <laughs> Miss Turner. 
I had a bit of fun with that. You know, he, come, <laughs> he, come, he comes back, he's been away in America sending these letters to enclose to his assistant, to my darling, I'd give anything to be with her. And he arrives back and has this secret week with her before he gets back to Gatshill. And what was he doing? Having elocution lessons. I mean, he was the best speaker in England. And she was <laughs> a not very successful little actress. Um, but Miss Longley was wonderful. Uh, and the other person who had a copy was Graham Storey, who was one of the editor of the Dickens Letters. And fortunately, he was a friend of mine because um, I'd known him from when I was at Cambridge. He was a Cambridge don. And he said he would give me every help. And he said the book is unpublishable. Anyhow, she, she let me have a copy, and I went up to see her in Hull, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to find. I'm not going to promise what I'm going to say. I, and I, the book was unpublishable, is unpublishable, but um, you know, she showed me many of the paths for research, which is why I dedicate my book to her, because I liked her. I thought she was a, a very decent... She's dead now. Uh, very honorable. She didn't give me very much help, but... She undoubtedly... A tip to anyone who's writing, who's researching a biography, look in all the other books, or published or unpublished things, for their notes. Because you can, you can find out things from notes. You can, you can have little pointers to where you need to go and look, where, where you can find information. Talking about tips, um, do you have a method that you deploy for every book? Do you have... Not a template, because that sounds too formulaic, but do you have a system? Do you have, for example, a system for organising your research on index cards? Or how do, you, how, do you, how do you do it? Well, it was index cards, and then came the age of computer. Right. <laughs> so, so it's now files in my computer. Um, I'm not terribly methodical, but I have a file... I have scores of files for each book, obviously. Um, you know, family, children, uh, <laughs> death, uh, uh, so on. But I have a very important file called General Notes. And whenever I have a thought or think of a sentence or have an idea, which I put it into that, and it has its date. And over the course of researching and writing a book, you build up a huge amount of that material, and it often turns out to be very, very useful. Sometimes an idea that's come to you very early in your research turns out to be really productive um, when you come to write the book. Another tip is don't wait to start writing until you think you've finished your research. You will never finish your research, and it's much better to start writing quite early on and sort of build up writing, I think. I mean, obviously other people have different methods, but for me, that's very important. Just to um, go back to Jane for a moment and perhaps maybe also um, touch on Thomas Hardy, one of the things that I think you do very well in the Jane Austen book is you really make it clear to the reader that our notions that somehow Jane's family are the basis for the characters that we all adore is just wrong. And that it's it's too simplistic and reductive to think that you know Cassandra appears as one of the Bennets, and that you know oh, we yes. want somehow we have this impulse that we want to draw these analogies always between the writers' lives and their characters. And when you look at your arguments um, regarding Jane Austen, you're disputing that. And similarly, in a way, with characters like Bathsheba and Tess. In, in Thomas Hardy's work. Well, Tess is Thomas Hardy, isn't she? <laughs> I suppose. I think, yes. But you don't say that explicitly. No, no. But when Tess 
Tess has that remark about if we, if we knew the day of our death, um, we'd be able to each year think, this is the day I'm going to die on. That's such a Thomas Hardy idea, isn't it? It that is, would, that fatalistic. Yes. And, and the other thing about Tess, when she's um, recovering after the death of the illegitimate baby, and I can't remember, but she, 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 she recovers and... Re- I can't remember the words, but gains her, her self-delight and she's young again and she's free again and it's a wonderful thing which I think Hardy who would have periods of depression would then sort of recover that self-delight less and less as he got older. But um, with Jane Austen was that something that you you knew very deliberately that you were going to have to make it clear? No I don't think I actually thought about it it never I never thought I never thought that they were uh, that she based her characters on, on But her. I think we, we want to think that for some reason. I don't, I don't know why, but I think we do. I think the most marvellous bit of, in all of Jane Austen is the chapter in which Elizabeth Bennet takes on Catherine de Bourgh. And I, I've thought about this since I reread, you know, quite recently, that Jane was born just when the Declaration of Independence was made. And when Elizabeth says to Lady Catherine, I have, I have the right to, to pursue happiness for myself without <laughs> bothering about people like you, she, I'm paraphrasing, but it's that, the pursuit of happiness, she actually uses that phrase. And I think Jane Austen, I think, really is saying that an ordinary girl can take on the upper classes and pursue her own line as she wishes. Yes. And in fact, in the later novels, every time there's an aristocrat, they're a fool, you know. They, they're Sir Walter and um, Sir Thomas Bertram. They're all wrong. They're always wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're always shown to be wrong by these girls. And it's, it's, I want to sort of actually do a new edition of my Jane Austen, because I want to make more of this, that Jane Austen, I think, was really m- much more radical than, than has been acknowledged. Claire, how much do you get emotionally involved in a book and in a life when you're immersed in it? You said to me the other day uh, when we were just chatting informally that although you have a family, you've, you've got a very big family and a complex family of your own, that you regard all of your subjects as your family. And I'm just wondering what that feels like when you're deep in someone's life. What happens to you emotionally? Maybe we should ask your husband if he's here. Well, I'm sure he'll say something, something kind. <laughs> I think, I, I, think I, I, I do rather withdraw, uh, and probably not such a good wife, when I'm, when I'm writing a book. You do have to... You do have to immerse yourself. I call it sinking down into the mud. I really like to be very quiet. Michael is marvellous. If I rush into his study and say something, he doesn't seem to mind. Well, he pretends he doesn't mind, and he gets on with his work again. But if I'm interrupted, I don't like it at all. I, I find it more difficult to sink down into the mud and to get on with my work. Yes. I mean, you say I've written a lot of books, but actually not all that many. And I wish I'd written more. I wish I'd started earlier, and I wish I hadn't had that gap when I had to go and work at the Sunday Times. They do go on being alive, because you go on finding out other things. People write to you. They ask you questions. 
uh, you have you know you have some new ideas. You want to change something. My publishers are very patient about putting. But Mrs. Jordan, I kept finding out more and more things. We had to keep adding little bits to the paperback, you know, further editions of the paperback. What sorts of things have you found out after a book has been finished that you've added? I mean, have, have they been things like the sort of medical evidence around the circumstances of a death, for example? Um, well, no, but I mean, with the Invisible Woman, the whole story of the death, which somebody sent to me, this story that there had been uh, this church warden who, in the house where Nellie lived, who had been a man who collapsed, and quite a lot of circumstantial evidence, and I worked very hard on that, and I didn't prove it, and I think it's only, you know, 50% possible, but I think it is possible that he collapsed that at her collapsed house, at her Dickens house. collapsed at her house. She had two maids and uh, a, a lot of help, and she could... The railways had come, the roads were empty, she could have got a, a cab and taken him back to Gads Hill. And she and Georgina were absolutely in cahoots. Georgina would have done anything someone said That's to me. That's his sister-in-law. That's his sister-in-law. And he said she would have sold the family silver to protect Dickens's reputation. And if you look at all the evidence, Georgina was the only person who was there when um, Dickens collapsed at Gads Hill, allegedly. Uh, the doctor wasn't called for a long time, and, and so on. So uh, I spent a lot of time doing that. It was great fun, of course, investigating that. Uh, as I say, I, it, it, Georgina's account of the death is very convincing, but, but she, is, she is the only witness of his collapse. Everyone was gathered around by the time he came to die. But other, other things that have come afterwards... Well, it's mostly stuff about Mrs. Jordan's children, uh, information... Um, Trying to remember my books. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you, while you think about that, let me ask you something else. You, you said that your books have taught you lessons about how to live, which is, of course, the theme of this festival. And I'm just wondering whether there are any particular life lessons attached to any of these books that you would like to cite as an example. What, what I suppose what you, what you see in Mrs. Jordan is this incredible dignity under pressure. That is a very, very impressive character but what have you learnt from each of your books well I've learnt one thing that you can come from a very poor background and you can by your work rise and mm. have an interesting and valuable life and I've again the value of work I think is what I've learnt because most of these people I've written about worked to the very end of their lives when Jane Austen was dying, her brother Henry said, as long as she could write with a pen, she wrote with a pen. Mm. And, when she, and then when she couldn't, she wrote with a pencil. And when she couldn't write with a pencil, she died. And that's, that's all just, you know, what a great woman she was. She was a genius. She was very young. She was the first one in her family to die. And she worked to the end. Dickens worked to the end. Hardy was dictating poetry to um, his wife on the day he died or the day before he died from his deathbed. He just went on working. And that seems to me so wonderful. I suppose there's another lesson in many of your books as well, which is that fame and success is no protection against tragedy, that you can be seemingly on top of the world and you can be felled in a moment, by the loss of a child, by, you know, all sorts of circumstances that, that can change. There's, there's really no immunity, no, no matter how high you reach, is there? Well, that's true, but I don't think we need books to tell us that. <laughs> I think we well. all know that, don't we? <laughs> it's, um, 
life is, is always uncertain. I'm interested in the fact that um, you've been very immersed in the, in the contemporary literary world, and it seems obvious that you would go to subjects like Hardy and Austen, but you've written two books about actresses. They were called actresses in those days, not, not actors as they prefer to be called today. And I was wondering whether the choice of these two actresses uh, was partly informed by the fact that you are married to a man of the theatre um, and that you, you... Or did you already have a love of theatre and of that world? Because in writing these books, you've had to write about the whole social and artistic milieu and the social status of actresses, which um, uh, Nellie Turnan and Mrs Jordan's status as actresses were completely different. No, I wasn't particularly interested in the theatre. I mean, I love Shakespeare and I, I love good plays, but I didn't have any particular... And it was entirely through researching Nellie um, that I... There were very good archives in England where you could find out a lot about the details of stage history. And she came from a family of effectively strolling players. Her, her mother uh, was... Her grandmother was an actress who married, uh, I think, the prompter. You can get all this from looking at playbills. And her uh, mother was born too soon after... You know. actresses, actresses lived by their own rules... There were acting families, so if you were, if you were your parents were actors, you would probably be put on the stage at the age of two, which Nellie and her sisters were, and her mother had been, and her aunt, and you grew up in this complete world apart. And actresses, on the whole, were rather well educated because they were studying Shakespeare and the Restoration dramatists and all, all sorts of interesting work from an early age. And they tended to make their own decisions about w whether they married or who they took up with mm. and where they, they travelled. Um, uh, Nellie's mother and father went off to America very, very early to do a tour with their eldest babe, Fanny, the eldest daughter, with them. Um, Nellie's eldest sister... Uh, well, the two eldest sisters, but the eldest sister, Fanny, was a real child prodigy, as you find in Dickens. You know, she was dancing and improvising and, and reciting, and she was so famous in Newcastle that the, they made a bust of her, which has disappeared. But, you know, she was... So that whole world of actresses I was very interested in. And when I'd finished uh, writing The Invisible Woman, I asked my publishers if, if I could write a, a sort of study of... Uh, actresses in England in the late 18th, early 19th century, and they said, obligingly said yes. And after about a year, my editor suggested lunch. And he said, well, now tell me how you're getting on. So I said, well, I'll just tell you about one of my... I had files and files. I'll just tell you about one of these actresses. I'll tell you about Mrs. Jordan. And I started speaking. And after half an hour, he said, just write that one, yeah. Claire. <laughs> and he was right. And he was right. And I said to him, I'm, he was so, so sweet, I said to him, um, she had these ten children, she already had three children, she had these ten children by William, and uh, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, and they were all beautiful and intelligent. Mm -hmm. And he said, they can't all have been beautiful and intelligent, Claire. And I said, yes, they were. <laughs> they were. <laughs> it's interesting, just mentioning Hermione, again, who is a very determined force, I, of I think it would be difficult to, to refuse her anything. She said that when she wrote the, um, the scene in which Virginia Woolf commits suicide, 
that she was completely distraught and, and said to her husband, I killed Virginia today. And, you know, it was a very, very harrowing thing to write that scene. Have you ever found yourself in tears oh, yes. writing any yes. passages of these yes, books? Yes, the Can death you? of Pepys. Well, the death of Jane Austen. Um, yes, certainly, certainly. Death of Mary Wollstonecraft is extremely harrowing and still more harrowing, the suicide of her daughter, Fanny. Mm. And one of the things that I think... This is a sort of slightly sort of change of gear subject. But one of the things that makes the Catherine Mansfield life so interesting, as you said before, is her friendships, particularly with people like D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf. Um, And I thought that there was a really fascinating remark in the Catherine Mansfield book where um, Virginia says at the end of her life, she's no longer my rival. And I thought that that was so revealing, so telling, that the dynamic of their friendship had always contained an element of competition. And we so rarely see that exposed or admitted to. But in a letter, she'd said, well, I've seen her off. Yes, yes. I think Bruce Leonard admired um, Catherine Mansfield very much, Mm. I think. Yes. I... I (laughs) I have to say, I was asked to write the Virginia Woolf biography, and I said no. Ah. And I'm glad, because Hermione did it wonderfully. But I don't share... I mean, I think Virginia Woolf was the most wonderful letter writer and diarist, though not a patch on Pepys. Um, (laughs) uh, But I think she has an over... I think her reputation has been over... built up. Ooh, what a deliciously provocative thing to say! (laughs) Well, I think she was she was wonderful, but I think her novels... Well, I don't think she's... For instance, compared with D.H. Lawrence. I mean, Lawrence's novels are fantastically great. Have you read Kangaroo recently? Uh, well, I haven't read it recently, but I thought it was terrific. I thought it was very good fun. It's not one of his greatest, no. but it is a very good read. Hmm. Well, but, we're going to have to agree to differ there. <laughs> Sons, Sons and Lovers... Sons and Lovers is one of... The, the great novels of the 20th century. Absolutely. And although Women in Love, alternate chapters, you can't help giggling a bit, but then the other <laughs> chapters are so, so wonderful. You just mentioned letters and diaries there, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about. You use letters and diaries very judiciously. How do you use them so that the voice of the person that you're quoting, like a Virginia, for example, does not overwhelm you and just does not become this kind of dominant force? How do you know how to pick out just the salient bits? Well, it's very hard to explain how one works. I mean, I talk somewhere about... I think you try and squeeze letters. I mean, there aren't many Jane Austen letters, so in one of my chapters in Jane Austen, I do actually squeeze one letter to get Mm -hmm. every possible thing I can out of it. And I found that... a fascinating thing to do because the more you read the more you see the more you you pick up and I did that with some of Dickens's letters too um well I think you do sort of you are no one could write like no one could write as well as Jane Austen so there's no risk uh, <laughs> one's going to start writing like Jane Austen but you do you are influenced by mm. the how much do you... I mean, you obviously go to the house, you do a lot of walking, I can see that, you know, and, and you provide us with maps 
um, yes, the maps, topography maps and landscape. Important. Maps, yeah, very important. Yeah. Illustration, very important. Other research do you do in the name of authenticity? There's a very telling couple of lines I just wanted to quote to you in your Catherine Mansfield book. You say towards the end that at one point when she was living at Le Prieuré in France, she kept her fur coat on inside. And you comment rather tantalizingly. Anyone who's tried to scrape carrots in a fur coat. <laughs> yes, you say anyone who's ever tried to scrape carrots in a fur coat will know what this means. And I'm thinking, <laughs> did you try that? Well, I think I only had a fake fur coat, but I think I, I think I did see what. Well, you know, yes, yes. It, in yes. other words, and then there's I another just one. I was so struck by her doing it. It was yes. so, so sort of impractical, um, so pathetic, so that, pathetic. You know, that she had to keep her coat on because she was so cold. At the and then in the in the Mary Wollstonecraft book, you say that her lover, the painter Fuseli, painted a portrait of a sleeping woman, head and shoulders dropped back over the end of a couch, in an attitude of abandon, and you say. This is quite hard to imitate. <laughs> Did you try it? I'm sure I tried it, yes. <laughs> of course I tried it, yes, yes. Anything else you've tried? Well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I would have tried to be a man if I could have been Peeps, but I'm not. No. But I felt that what... I know you don't want to talk about Peeps, but what Peeps gives you is he, when you've read Peeps, you know what it is to be a man. There is no doubt because you've lived the life of a young man on the make. You know, it's wonderful. You can walk down the street with him. So I, I'm forcing you into a bit of Peeps. No, no, that's, that's fine. In fact, Peeps is very interesting because he takes you out of your comfort zone in that you had a century where you kind of... You know, Sem- you, yeah, 17th subject- century is the most interesting century in English history. We got rid of the kings, we got rid of the lords, we got rid of the bishops, we got rid of the whole lot. And then we brought them back again. <laughs> but then we did limit the power of royalty in 1688. So it, it is the most fascinating century. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Claire Tomalin, who very cleverly made sure that we found out as little as possible about her. She did go on to write a memoir called A Life of My Own, in which she discusses her parents' unhappy marriage, her turbulent first marriage to journalist Nicholas Tomalin, the suicide of her daughter, and other family tragedies, whilst remaining maddeningly discreet about her affairs, although she does name Martin Amis as one of her literary lovers. I think these life experiences are what have made her such an empathetic biographer. And a big thank you to Gemma Burrell for the original invitation to do the interview with Claire. Oh, and I recommend Gemma's podcast, The Secret Life of Writers. Also to Lydia Tasker and her team at Sydney Writers' Festival for unearthing the audio for me. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, produced and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.